an Iran air flight is flying from Bandar Abbas to Dubai when the flight disappears from the sky. What caused this flight to crash short of its destination? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Oh. <laughs> Everyone, welcome Andrew. Hey, how's it going, guys? Andrew's here. I'm and just I'm just a normie. He's in, <laughs> I'm just a normie. He's in town literally for the day. Yeah. He drove in this morning and he's driving back tonight. This is Miranda's boyfriend. Yeah, this is my boyfriend. Hello. Yeah. You can't see me. You can't, you can't see me. <laughs> but I can see you guys. Is this what millennial couples do for a double date these days? I guess. <laughs> oh, I guess. They podcast they together? They podcast together. <laughs> I guess that's how that works. Okay. Logistics. Not much stuff to report because we recorded yesterday. Submit your listener stories. Again, they'll probably be in the November episode if you submit them now. Yes. Hopefully. Or December, depending on how many we get. Yep. Also that. I always am cautious. If you'd like to make recommendations, we told the patrons this on the post episode last week, but we're 22 away currently. From being from over being, one year out. Yeah. So if you want to do that, like go for it. But it's going to be kind of hard because we've covered a lot of big stuff. We have. And a lot of big stuff is on our List. schedule already. Yes. So if you know of any unique ones that have a report. Please. Submit them. Please. Sign up for Feel the free. newsletter. Newsletter probably went out last week. If you want it. It has new trivia questions. It does. If you want to hear the answers to the trivia questions. Be a patron. Because. We talked about it in our last post episode. We did. I think that's all the housekeeping, right? That's probably it. There's not a whole lot from one day to the next. Yeah. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Iran Air Flight 655. I just heard several people go, Yeah, a lot of people probably just went, If you were live at the time, you, I'm sure you were well aware of this thanks to our patrons kate and helen for recommending this thank you kate and helen this occurred on july the 3rd of 1988 this was an airbus a300 b2-203 this was an a300b for those of you that know anything about the a300b it was the more efficient longer range version of the a300 it is a twin engine wide body aircraft it was the original aircraft that airbus built the a300 phenomenal airplane and there's actually still quite a few of them in service, amazingly, with cargo carriers even in the United States. This one had the tail number Echo Papa-India Bravo Uniform. This was a flight from Bandar Abbas in Iran to Dubai in the UAE. It was a very short flight, by the way. Much like our flight last week, or yesterday, <laughs> for us. Very short. The captain for this flight was Mohsen Rezayan. I don't know. Oh, boy. Something along those lines. 38 years old. He had 7,000 hours total of which 2,057 hours were on the A300. So he actually had a good chunk of hours on the airplane. The first officer of the flight is Kamran Temori. He was 31 years old. At the time, he had 2,200 hours, of which 708 were on the A300. So he still had quite a bit of hours on the A300, all things considered. So what are the like the average amount of hours? There's not really an average, to be honest. It just, nowadays, it should be over 1,500 be on a commercial flight. But some other countries don't have the same regulations. Still don't use that, yeah. So if if they're an ICAO country, or they're flying into an ICAO country, it has to be $1,500. But that still really only applies post-2009. Yeah, previous to that, there wasn't a cap. 
Right. There wasn't a, a, min- a minimum. A minimum, I should yes, say. Yes, a minimum. There wasn't a, like, you have to have this many, and then you can be a commercial pilot. If you start getting into the five digits, though, you are an extremely experienced pilot. Yes. Four digits, pretty experienced. You know, they're going to know their stuff. Less than that? Yeah, you probably are still <laughs> flying, like, putt-putt. Right. <laughs> but on an aircraft type, I would say anybody who has more than 200, 300 hours on an aircraft type is pretty experienced. They're going to know the airplane's ins and outs. That's a lot of time for any one thing. The flight engineer for the flight was Mohammed Riza Amini. He was 33 at the time. He had 2,800 hours total, of which 736 were on the A300. So he's pretty similar to the first officer in both total hours and aircraft type hours. The flight crew and aircraft had begun their day in Tehran, in Iran, before flying a regularly scheduled flight to Bandar Abbas, which was on time and normal. This was also a very short flight. Once in Bandar Abbas, a few checks were completed, but 274 passengers and 16 crew were aboard the aircraft for the next flight, a short flight to Dubai. 290 people total. That's a lot for quite a short flight. An issue with the passenger's visa caused a 20-minute delay at the gate for the flight's departure. The flight was scheduled to depart at 9.50 a.m. local time and arrive at 11.15 a.m. local time in Dubai. That sounds like quite some time. It's that a t- is not. They cross a time zone, huh? This is complicated because of the time zones. But this flight is only scheduled for 55 minutes. Oh, okay. What this actually is... <laughs> Follow along here, if you will. <laughs> Bandar Abbas in Iran is three hours, 30 minutes off of UTC. It is also east of Dubai, which is four hours off of UTC. What? Right. <laughs> That's not normally how it works. Normally, the earlier time zone would be west of the other one. I'm so confused. But they're not very far apart. The actual flight time for this, I think, was less than 30 minutes scheduled. But gate to gate was 55. So, very short flight. However, <laughs> I put everything in local times, and because of that, you have this scheduled departure of 9.50 a.m. and scheduled arrival of 11.15 a.m. How in the world that math works out, it is very strange. But that is actually what's planned. Okay. Before takeoff, the flight was cleared to Dubai using their planned routing of Alpha 59 and Alpha 59 Whiskey Airways at a cruising altitude of 14,000 feet. So not very high. No. (laughs) So that makes sense. It's a short flight. They're not going to go very high. Right. With a simulated Mobet 1B departure. What this really is, okay, it's a little bit complicated what I just said there. Mobet, which is Mike Oscar Bravo Echo Tango, is a point along their route. However, the 1B is a departure routing out of Bandar Abbas. The reason this is a simulated departure is because their route takes them along the Alpha 59 airway, which goes right along the departure path, straight out from the runway. So it's simulated because once they end that departure, they just stay on the same route. Basically, the departure is mostly pointless except for altitudes. So... They're doing this departure routing, but it's a straight-out departure. That's all it really is. They were also given a squat code of 6760 and instructed to contact Bandar Abbas Approach Control after takeoff. This was all included in their departure clearance. Bandar Abbas Approach? Yep. 
bend our bus approach. This is actually not entirely uncommon in different parts of the world. We even do it here in the U.S. a lot because if there's nobody manning the departure control, but there is somebody manning the approach control, they at least attack the approach control. At least somebody at a higher altitude who's monitoring the aircraft in a general area has an idea of what to do with you. So that's why they do that. So there probably wasn't anybody manning the departure control. The flight was finally cleared for takeoff, and it lifted from runway 21 at Bandar Abbas at 10.17 a.m. local time, which was 27 minutes late, for all those that are trying to keep track of times. Does they... anyone actually do that? What do you mean? Me? To keep track of time? Me, I'm supposed to. Oh. <laughs> That's like half <laughs> of my job. job. <laughs> they climbed straight out on the Alpha 59 airway. Shortly after lifting off, the flight crew contacted the company office at Bandar Abbas on 131.8 frequency, at which time they informed the company of their departure time and their estimated arrival time at Dubai. 10.19 a.m. and 18 seconds local time, the flight contacted Bandar Abbas approach control and reported that they were climbing out of 3,500 feet with an estimate of crossing Mobit, that point we talked about, at 10.22 a.m., as well as the Darax, or Delta Alpha Romeo Alpha X-Ray boundary at 10.28 and arriving in Dubai at 11.15 a.m. local time. That's just 13 minutes after passing the boundary. 10.28, 11.15. 13 minutes. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. This is... Wow. Times were really complicated in this one. Didn't matter much later. Mind you, I am now looking at the map of this. Uh-huh. This flight just crosses the Strait of Ormuz, and then it's in Dubai. Straight up, straight down. That is literally this is the whole so point. short. You could do this with a boat, they but they didn't. No good reason. Yep, maybe, maybe not. Is it usually cheaper to fly? Depends. Mm. It really depends on the airline, the countries, the routes. There's a lot of things that vary. In this case, it was just the easiest way to get from one point to another. We'll talk about why it's so much easier in a little bit. I know I talked about the Derek's boundary. I'm just going to call it the boundary from here on. The boundary is essentially the point where they cross from Iran's airspace into the UAE's airspace. It's okay. a little bit more complicated than that, but this is a point along their route as well. We just call it the boundary. This is also, in theory, where the time zone changes. This is also complicated. 10.21 a.m. and 4 seconds, the flight was still under the approach control, but contacted Tehran South Sector Frequencies to report that they were at 7,000 feet climbing to 14,000 feet, and gave them their estimated time of crossing the boundary and arriving in Dubai, the same times they had given the approach controller. Talk about it, but they're doing this preemptively. They have contacted Tehran all on their own because they know they're going to have to anyways. This is not normal procedure, nor do I recommend doing this, nor would this be in any company's procedure to contact an actual air traffic control frequency without being given instructions to do so, for one, two, preemptively making an assumption, and three, just overall it's bad practice because you don't know for sure if that's who you're going to have to talk to, but they did this anyways, and to be fair, it all worked out. Doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything. I just thought this was kind of strange. Tehran ATC acknowledged and instructed the flight to report when they were maintaining 14,000 feet and passing the boundary. They also asked for confirmation that the flight was squawking 6760. The flight confirmed the squawk code and acknowledged the given instructions. At 10.24 a.m., the flight reported to the Bandar Abbas approach control that they were passing Mobit and climbing through 12,000 feet, so this was about three minutes later than they anticipated. 10.24 a.m. and 11 seconds, the approach controller then instructed the flight to contact Tehran ATC, which the flight acknowledged. Sadly, this was the last time they would ever be heard from. 
Uh-oh. So they had already contacted Tehran. They were now being told to do so, and they never did. Just 32 seconds after that, while still climbing over the waters of the Strait of Hormuz near Keshem Island, the aircraft was suddenly rocked by two massive explosions near the tail and wing. The aircraft immediately disintegrated in midair and fell into the waters below. Though rescue efforts were launched by Iran, video that they had captured from some helicopters, some of the rescue helicopters, were released on state television of the wreckage and bodies floating on the surface of the water, which made it quickly apparent that nobody survived the crash. All 290 on board had perished, and the airplane was completely destroyed. Within a very short time of this, Iran issued a report stating that the aircraft was actually shot down by a missile. Oh, good. Nearly simultaneously to that, the Pentagon in the United States stated that their naval ship, the USS Vincennes, had shot down an Iranian F-14 Tomcat fighter jet. However, just hours later, they retracted that statement and instead confirmed that they had in fact shot down a commercial airliner. So we did that? Yep. Yeah. Oh my god. 1988. This was not a very small thing. How would you confuse a fighter jet for a commercial aircraft? Well, because I got to give away everything that actually happened, somebody has the very hard task of explaining how. Okay. (laughs) Because this does get messy and complicated. Well, it sounds already sounds messy. It is. It is very messy. It started messy and it doesn't get better. It does not. Okay. This investigation was performed by the U.S. military. And the ICAO. That I will get to later. Yes. So what you're telling me is we've investigated ourselves and we found nothing wrong. <laughs> well. We will get there. We will get to all of this. We'll get there. We'll get there. We will get to all of this. What you all he, didn't see was my face. This is why you two get along. You do the same thing. <laughs> Could you stop predicting the entire episode, please? And thank you. I'm sorry. I'm horrible. <laughs> So, this event occurred during the Iran-Iraq War, which at this point included air attacks against merchant ships from neighboring countries. Tensions were running high, needless to say. Very. A year prior, the Iraqi Air Force had attacked the U.S. Navy frigate the USS Stark, killing 37 sailors. Later that year, the U.S. Navy engaged with Iranian gunboats. In April of 1988, the USS Samuel B. Roberts struck an Iranian landmine. In May of 1988, the U.S. engaged in Operation Praying Mantis, sinking an Iranian frigate, a fast attack craft, and three speedboats, as well as damaged another Iranian frigate, two Iranian platforms, and a fighter. In total, 56 Iranians were killed, while the U.S. only lost one helicopter with its two pilots, but that was by accident. So, Operation Praying Mantis having just occurred, everything's really tense. Really tense. The U.S. had expanded its Navy's protection to all friendly neutral shipping in the Persian Gulf. So, how do we continue operating commercial air services in this region? Well, in late 1987, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a NOTAM, or Notice to Airmen as it was called at the time, stating that all Persian Gulf civilian aircraft must monitor either the military air distress frequency of 243 MHz or the international air distress frequency of... Anyone. You should know this. 121.5 MHz. Mm-hmm. If you ever know anything, that is the emergency frequency. If you're in an airplane and you have an emergency, just tune to 121.5. Period. Yep. Anywhere north. So they must monitor either of those frequencies and be prepared to identify themselves when asked by the U.S. military. There is also a system called Identification Friend or Foe, a.k.a. the IFF, which is used to make it obvious which one you are. Civilian aircraft were to squawk mode 3, whereas military were to squawk mode 2. Keep that in mind. If you fly in... 
even general aviation, you have heard the term Mode 3 many, many, many a time. Because your transponder is a Mode 3 transponder, and if you ever talk about transponders, you will always see that it is a Mode 3 transponder, no matter the transponder. And people, I'm sure, all over the world have been like, what in the world does that even mean? It means you're not military. Congratulations. That's pretty much it. Every transponder on Earth is Mode 3, but not all transponders are only Mode 3. I see. The Vincennes was sent to the area on short notice and had just arrived in May because they were lacking radar coverage in the area, making it hard to keep the area quote-unquote safe. They were passing through the Strait of Hormuz on return from escort duty when the helicopter associated with the vessel was fired upon by Iranian patrol boats. So the Vincennes went to go engage, but they all violated Omani waters and were told by the Oman Royal Navy to GTFO. Yes. Leave. <laughs> so the Vincennes followed the Iranian gunboats. Immediately after taking off, Flight 655 was received by the Vincennes and was received as IFF Mode 2. Briefly leading the crew to believe it was an Iranian F-14 Tomcat, as they had intelligence indicating that one was taking off from Bandar Abbas, which was correct intel. It just wasn't the aircraft that they were tracking. One of the military officers checked the commercial air schedule, but got confused which time zone the schedule was in. I can't possibly imagine why. <laughs> ah, so, I see. So there's the time zone of Bandar Abbas, there's the time zone of Dubai, and then there's the time zone that the ship is operating on, Yep. which is Bahrain time. Yep. So, what was the schedule running on? No idea. Also, the flight's delayed by half an hour, so it's not following the schedule. All of these things are not good. Well, going back to Korean Airlines Flight 007, did you try talking to them? Yes. The crew of the Vincennes reached out on the radio a total of ten times. Seven times on the military distress frequency, which Flight 655 did not have the equipment to tune to, as well as three times on the international air distress frequency. So why didn't the crew answer? Did they know they were supposed to be monitoring that frequency? Yes, it was in their dispatch documentation, and all evidence says that they were on that frequency. However, the Vincennes was calling for an aircraft with a heading of 210, which they had, and a speed of 350 knots. Well, the airspeed indicator on flight 655 probably read something more like 300 knots because that's indicated airspeed, and the Vincennes was calling for ground speed. Which is the only thing it could read. So they didn't think they were talking to them because they were reading off a different speed. And all aircraft operate in indicated airspeed. If you really need a brief explanation on why that is, that's because they want to know how much air is actually flowing over the wing, not how fast they are going over the ground, because that's what matters. So they didn't think they were talking to them those three times, so they didn't answer. Had the Vincennes asked for contact with the aircraft using its unique squawk code of 6760, I Correct. believe... Correct. This miscommunication would not have happened, but the U.S. Navy did not require use of the squat code at the time. Well, that's how you get commercial, sh you know, passenger aircraft getting shot down. In the depiction in the Mayday episode, they did have a Mode 3 indication. It had shown them. Hold on. I'm I sure you'll get there. Okay. Furthermore, the aircraft had squawked Mode 2, right? No. This was an instance of user interface error with the super advanced computers on the Vincennes. They had, quote-unquote, hooked the civilian airliner, but they actually still had the airport selected, meaning that they were receiving the Mode 2 of the F-14 Tomcat that was still waiting to take off. So the icon moving on the screen that they thought they had selected was Flight 655, but the information they were getting was from the fighter jet. So, to sum this up, their radar has a range of 100 nautical miles. 
And especially when they're in a combat situation, which we'll talk a little bit about, they are tracking everything around them within a 100 nautical mile range. Anything. Everything. On their radar, as soon as this airplane was airborne, it was a target on their radar. So they had a cursor on this radar where they were able to select an aircraft. Basically, they literally scroll it around on the radar. They scroll to that point because it tells them absolutely nothing other than there's a point on the radar. That is it. It gives them no data. They select that, and it spits back this transponder data, and that's it. However, the aircraft had just taken off from the airport and was still over it when they selected it. This is why there's some confusion. So they had selected the other aircraft, but they thought they had selected the one that was moving toward them at a not slow pace. Well, isn't there, like, couldn't you just reselect it and it would give you the information? Yeah, but at this point, we're working off of this wonderful thing called confirmation bias. You heard about an F-14 Tomcat taking off in your direction, ready to engage in combat. You see a Mode 2 aircraft flying at you. Why would you think anything else? Not well, only was it Mode 2, but the Mode 2 transponder data that spat back was 1100, which on their code in the book they had in their hand was labeled as Iranian F-14 well, on the ship. So, okay, here's the issue I'm having, right? So mm-hmm. they tried contacting them a total of 10 times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you not think to reselect the airplane while doing so? They still had it selected. We can talk about this a little bit. Do you have what happened a little bit later on? I don't know what you're referring to. A lot happened later on. When they weren't getting the F-14 data? No. They had selected the right airplane. When it was over the airfield, they had both transponders. Right. They had Mode 3 and Mode 2 showing at the same time. As the airplane left that area, it was still on the same airplane... The data for the F-14 went away. They didn't, like, double check. Like, I, I'm it sorry. It was called out. I'm just having a really hard time believing that, and they tried so hard to contact this airplane, but they didn't mm-hmm. think about making sure to double check the data before they decided to go shoot down an airplane. Nope, again, yeah. we're working on confirmation bias in a wartime in a very tense situation, and they are engaged in active combat while all of this is happening. There's a couple of key things. Understandable, but still. I mean, you have civilian aircraft right. flying through that airspace. And they didn't think there were any because there was right. nothing on the schedule. For that exact time. This is what added to the confirmation bias. There's a couple more things that still add to it that I'm sure I will get there. keep going. You'll get there. But point is, at some point, the F-14 data dropped off. Somebody did call this out to the captain who was monitoring this radar and said, this could be Comair, which is commercial aviation, rather than an F-14, because he noticed that the F-14 squawked the mode two, gone. Only the okay. mode three was shown. Let me keep going. Yes, continue. Then another officer reported that the suspect aircraft was beginning to descend, heightening the already tense situation. It is heading at you and it is descending. What are you going to do? It is closing in fast. When the records from the Aegis system aboard the vessel were pulled, it was revealed that the aircraft was indeed climbing at the time and was squawking Mode 3, both in contradiction to reports from the crew. Captain Rogers ultimately made the decision to fire upon the aircraft given the information he was being told from his colleagues who he trusted. The U.S. military inquiry determined that the accident was not the result of negligence or misconduct by any U.S. naval personnel. Captain Rogers acted in a prudent manner with the information given. They also said that Iran must share in the blame in conducting civil and commercial air services in such a hostile environment, having them operate on the airway that went directly over the strait with active war transpiring. Which, yeah, maybe you not a, a good idea. If you look at a map of it, though, it's literally across the strait. You could probably see Dubai. 
today. Practically. Practically. It's a little far. It's 144 yeah. miles. Right. It's not far. So. I, I don't know. So I realized that it was a tense situation, wartime. I just mm-hmm. feel like, first of all, there was more than just one person in that room. Right. Most likely, or on that ship, looking at this information and the fact that no one really caught the fact that, hey, maybe this is not a fighter There was jet. a lot of questions. They still, in their mind, I think it was still very much a possibility problem they had is they hadn't gotten a response from the aircraft. It was closing at them. Somebody in the room had said it was descending, even though no data shows that it was at any point in time. The ship basically had a black box for every single one of these monitors. All the data showed that it was climbing. So somebody had mistaken something in the data for it being descending. Someone. No idea. And they basically said that was, I don't know what happened there. We don't know why that was called out. And they had waited because initially they were supposed to make the call to Engage the aircraft basically at 20 nautical miles from their location. Yeah. They waited until 10. So they waited until it was really late and the aircraft was very close. And they were very aware that a previous ship had waited. There was a lot of miscalculations and they had been shot and 36 sailors had died just the year prior. 37. Sorry, 37 sailors should die just the year prior. So they don't want to be in the same situation. Right. And that's understandable. I just think that... Yes. I, I mean, we've talked about this before with other Hinds- downs. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Like, yes. my whole thing is, is like, double-checking information, right? Like, Correct. Like, obviously, you're in wartime. Obviously, it's tense. But it only takes maybe a couple seconds, even, to just making sure someone double-checks the data. Right. That makes sure that if you're going to make the decision to shoot a plane down, that it is an actual, you know, military aircraft coming at you and not a civilian aircraft right so let's continue let's continue because there's still a few things so now the icao had conducted their own investigation which a reporter got a hold of because the military report that was released was missing one very particular thing that most accident investigations contain a map where was everyone in relation to each other it was found using the icao investigation that things didn't exactly happen as everyone thought they did Iranian gunboats began harassing merchant ships, at which time the Vincennes was far south of the USS Montgomery, and they requested permission to assist in defending the merchant ships. They were told they could only send their helicopter. However, the Vincennes got up and went anyway, even though they were told only their helicopter They turned around and pointed themselves at the Montgomery. This was an action that clearly indicated that they were looking for trouble. Nothing was out of control. They took it upon themselves to be there amidst the action. But when the Iranian gunboats fired upon the helicopter, the Vincennes was justified in pursuing. But they pursued into Iranian territorial waters after they were kicked out of Omani waters. They had pursued four kilometers into Iranian waters. Which they wouldn't have been in Iranian waters if they had waited till the helicopter was fired upon. So that's kind of the whole thing. It literally put them in the path of the airliner. Right. In hostile waters. If they hadn't done so, if they had not pursued and instead remained in international waters, chances are they would have paid more attention to their air reconnaissance rather than surface waters, and they wouldn't have been as taken by surprise by the A300 and would have had more time to decide on an appropriate action. When the U.S. military inquiry said that Iran shouldn't have been operating civilian aircraft in the area due to wartime hostilities, the ICAO conversely said that since civil operations were well-established and regular, war vessels should have taken that into consideration, especially since warships were often challenging civil aircraft during critical phases of flight, such as takeoff and landing. They were on climb out. Like, obviously, this flight happens, what, 
maybe probably daily. It was at actually, least daily, maybe more than once daily. It was actually happened only two times a week. Well, there you go. But still. But still, it had been operating, I think, for seven years at that point. Yeah. If mm-hmm. it's that regular, you need to take that into consideration. Right. And I'm sorry. I know that they they weren't on the schedule. There are delays that happen all the time. But the funny that thing is- That is a is, great segue. Right. Let me keep going. I mentioned earlier that the Vincennes had a copy of the schedule for civilian aircraft in the area, but it was just that. A schedule. If there's anything we know in commercial aviation- Nothing is ever on time. (laughs) Like, ever. There was no coordination between U.S. warships and civil air traffic control. Such coordination is, um, I don't know, appropriate and would have prevented all of this. Also, the U.S. warships were not provided with the equipment for communications on the same frequencies as civilian aircraft other than the distress frequency. So they had no way of reaching out on any other common frequencies that the aircraft may have tuned to, such as ground ops, approach control, any of that. They didn't have access to any of that. They didn't have the equipment to tune to those frequencies. The investigation confirmed that the crew would have been readily available and able to identify themselves when asked. They were well-versed in the use of English, so there would not be a language barrier, as, I don't know, numerous other episodes we've covered. But when called identified aircraft on course 210, speed such and such, altitude so and so, it did not match what they saw on their instrument panel. The speeds used in those callouts by the Vincennes were 316 knots, 350 knots, and 360 knots. But again, those are all ground speeds. And the indicated airspeed during the climb would have been 250 to 300 knots. So they didn't think they were being called them. And there were other aircraft in the area that are like, oh, they must be talking to them. Most critically is the one thing they didn't say. The squat code. Should have just used the squat code. Because it was the one other piece of information they had from the airplane. It's a unique identifier. And I mean, that just makes more sense to me, too. It's if they're not responding, you're saying this information, they're not responding to you. They have a squat code. Just call their squat code. Right. Because then they're like, oh, okay, they're talking to us. Right. Rather than, I mean, because they can't tell, like, what flight or what number of flight it is or whatever. Right. right? Which, if they had... A radar as ATC would have equipped, which a lot of ships these days kind of can or do because a lot of that data is way more digital and easy to access. That kind of information is key and critical, and they could get that kind of data these days. So that's one of the things that I know has changed. These kinds of warships would have flight numbers and squat codes directly displayed on their radar rather than just one piece of data. I think we've also had enough accidents at this point. Yes, That have been true accidents. Yes, yes. I would say now most civilian aircraft shootdowns are no longer accidents. No, not anymore. It's still, they still happen. (laughs) But yes, most are not. So that's all I got. We're going to take a quick brick break. Yes. And then go over the normal stuff plus some uh, aftermath. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, we're back. Let's do the normal stuff. This is all from the ICAO report. This is from the ICAO report, of which there are no findings. What? You know. There's... Those are not findings. It says findings! Where do you see findings? It's a myth. Page 22 of the PDF. Doesn't exist. Oh, there are findings. Well, that's totally... (laughs) That's totally separate from the other section, which is down much lower. Anyways. Well, there are far too many of these. And Uh, Nick obviously didn't read them before. Well, because what I found was all this stuff about the military, their intelligence and everything the assessments just of the ship itself 
Okay, well, let's go through these real quick. Everyone was properly certificated, blah, 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 yeah, blah. The everything aircraft related, was fine. Everything related to the aircraft, the pilots, and everything related to the flight, totally normal. Totally fine. You might notice I didn't talk about black boxes. It's because they were never recovered. And they really didn't need to be, because we knew what happened. I mean, it was terrible. It wouldn't have told them anything other than it may have confirmed that the airplane was indeed continually climbing, but they had that data from other points, radars. Yeah. They knew the airplane was climbing. It never descended. There was no red alert status in effect on July 3rd, and the air traffic control units in Tehran and Bandar Ababas were unaware of any activities at sea, so they didn't know that it was active. Which is true. However, the ship's captain for the USS Vincennes had been told that morning to be on high alert because of the July 4th weekend. They were actually heading into port to have July 4th off. They were going to have a whole day to themselves. But they were told that morning on July 3rd that they needed to be on high alert because attackers would be taking advantage of the holiday weekend for them. Other than being 20 minutes late, the crew did everything fine. They selected their correct squat code. Their automatic pressure altitude transmission was functioning. They remained on the route that they were given. Their climb profile was normal. I still argued they jumped the gun on the radio thing, but it literally has absolutely nothing to do with anything, so that doesn't matter. The flight crew carried out normal VHF communications with air traffic control units concerned. It actually says that. Yep. <laughs> the flight crew was aware of Iran Air Company instruction to monitor frequency 121.5 at all times while operating in the Gulf area. Which they hadn't done I mean, they were, but they weren't really paying attention because they were in a critical phase of flight. They were on the climb out and they were talking to two other frequencies and they were busy doing these things. And the people that were talking over the 121.5 radio weren't telling them anything of importance anyways. There was no response to the challenges made on frequency 121.5, indicating that the flight crew did not identify their flight as being challenged. The aircraft was not equipped to receive the military distress frequency. I would argue the one thing that kind of bothered me the whole time that I watched the episode and just in thinking about it, they depict everybody in the Mayday episode as having binoculars, and I'm sure they did, because it's a ship. That's, you know, a naval ship. That's what they do. I wholeheartedly believe they had the ability, when this airplane, when this airplane, airplane was only 10 nautical miles away and under 12,000 feet, that see, they could see it. That's because that's my thought too. Because when here in Colorado, mm -hmm. right, when you have fighter jets flying over, mm -hmm. or when you have an airliner flying over, mm -hmm. you can tell the difference, right? Mm -hmm. The Tomcat probably would have been louder. Yeah. Granted, it's still more than 10 miles away. Right. But I would think like the stereotypical look of an airliner from far away would be different than the sharp look of a fighter jet from far away. I still feel in like, my mind. Right. I still feel like they could have had some form of binocular or optical device that they could have figured out. They could have now, seen. Now, if they're still focusing on surface airplane. water stuff instead of focusing on actually trying to see and the that, plane, that that's different. Is 100% the argument that they were engaged because also at the same time, and I know you didn't mention this, they actually, they were using their forward five-inch gun to fire upon... The gunboats. The gunboats. It jammed. They had to do a, a very fast 180-degree turn. They did a high-speed turn with the ship literally tilting. And there's actually footage of this in the Mayday episode because they had a media crew on board. So they were in a hard turn, and they turned themselves 180 degrees around so they could use the rear gun. So this is all happening at the exact same time that they're dealing with this. Everybody's pretty much focused on the surface fire... And turning the ship around. And a couple people are like, hey, there's a plane. Yeah. Which they shouldn't have been in those waters anyway, because they weren't supposed to be. Correct. 
So the civil air traffic route structure and major airports in the Gulf area were displayed on the Aegis screen displays in the Combat Information Center. This is something they didn't display in Mayday, and I wish they would have because I read that too. And it it's one of those things that to me when I watched the episode, I was like, well, why don't they have like the airways and the airspace displayed? However, it does not necessarily contain airway widths. Sure. And I understand. This is, I think the airway is like 10 miles wide. It is sort of, yeah. No, I, I'm pretty sure I read it's 10 miles wide. Could be. In any case, it matters. This the information matters. displayed in real time appeared adequate for a projection of two-dimension air traffic situation. However, it did not provide altitude information. Which is interesting, because they did have altitude information from a different display. But it was not on the Aegis large screen displays in the Combat Information Center. And that's critical. That's probably why they didn't have multiple people checking the altitude. Yeah. Information on civil flight schedules was available in the Combat Information Center. However, in the form presented, it was of extremely limited value for the determination of estimated time of overflight of individual aircraft. Flight plan information and flight progress data, including information on assigned SSR Mode A codes, were not available to assist in flight identification. So they did not have the planned squat code of the flight available on the schedule. Right. If they had looked at their radar, it was clearly right there. But... There was no coordination between United States warships and the civil ATS units responsible for the provision of air traffic services within the area of the Gulf. Correct. Iran air flight crews were well versed in the use of English. They were. And they had no problem with this. And it was proven because, I mean, they were talking on the radio in English, too. They used it for Bandar Abbas tower and approach, as well as Tehran area control. All of that was in English. And that was recorded in English. The contents of the challenges and warnings issued to Flight 655 on 121.5 varied from one transmission to the next. It is uncertain whether the flight crew would have been able to rapidly and reliably identify their flight as the subject of the challenges and warnings. Although course information could have been recognizable to the flight crew, speed information given on the basis of ground speed may not have been recognizable by the pilots. Bearing and range information to the warship was of little relevance to the pilot. Position information and geographical coordinates was not a practical method to establish identification. The SSR Mode A code displayed by Flight 655, or their squat code, could have been immediately recognizable to the flight crew, but was only given in the final challenge. The initial assessment by the USS Vincennes that the radar contact may have been hostile was based on A, the fact that the flight had just taken off from a joint civil-military aerodrome, or airport. Yep. B, the availability of intelligence information on Iranian F-14 deployment to Bandar Abbas and the expectation of hostile activity. C, the possibility of Iranian use of air support and the surface engagements with U.S. warships. D, the association of the radar contact with an unrelated IFF mode 2 response. And E, the appearance of an unidentified radar contact that could not be related to a scheduled time of departure of a civil flight. Which, I can understand all of that. And again, that's still why they uphold, even to this day, actually, they still uphold that they didn't they weren't anything the wrong. wrong. Except kill a bunch of 290 people. people. Nothing 290 to do people. with the war. Yeah. Right. The continued assessment of hostile military aircraft by USS Vincennes and the failure to identify it as a civil flight were based on A, the radar contact had already been identified and labeled as an F-14. B, the lack of response from the contact to the challenges and warnings on both frequencies. C, no detection of civil weather radar and radio altimeter emissions from the contact. They didn't need to be using their weather radar. No. That didn't matter because there was no weather that day. And this is part of why I think they could have seen it anyways. <laughs> clear weather. It's clear weather. D. Reports by some personnel on the Vincennes of changes in flight profile, as in descent and acceleration, which gave the appearance of maneuvering into an attack profile. And E. The radar contact was straight towards the USS Montgomery and USS Vincennes on a course slightly diverging from the center line of Airway A-59, which is apparently amber 
59, not Alpha 59. Yeah, that's because it's an amber airway, which is, we would still call it Alpha 59, but yeah. Reports of changes in flight profile from climb to descent and acceleration were heard in the Combat Information Center, as recalled by a number of crew members, including the operators who at the time issued the challenges on the frequencies containing correct Aegis system information. The Aegis system contained and displayed correctly the IFF mode and code and the altitude and speed information of the contact. The Aegis system recorded a flight profile consistent with a normal climb profile of an Airbus A300. Causes The aircraft was perceived as a military aircraft with hostile intentions and was destroyed by two surface-to-air missiles. The reason for misidentification are in the aforementioned findings. Right. So we'll go into the recommendations here in just a moment, but one of the reasons that I do think the black box might have been Helpful. Helpful is one, we could have heard how the radio communication was actually being heard in the cockpit. If they were actually monitoring that frequency, how much were they actually hearing? How loud was it? Were they being stepped on by the other radio? Were they doing something else? Were they doing checklists? Right. All of these things are very possible. So they might have just been ignoring it. Could have been quiet. Who knows? There's so many things there. But retrieval of that aircraft is not... Basically not possible. Because... Hostile waters. Yeah. You want to go do a scavenger hunt in a war zone? Right. So that's why they didn't. So... They basically just recovered whatever floated to the surface. Yeah. The other thing with this, the A300 was a pretty advanced airplane for the time. And a lot of airplanes these days, and even back then it was starting to be a thing, they had a ground speed indicator. This, though, is really contingent on being able to use GPS, which at the time... Still very rudimentary. So a lot of aircraft these days, I mean, basically every aircraft flying in the skies these days has a ground speed indicator, and that would have been really helpful to them in this case, but I wouldn't know if they would have thought to even look at a ground speed indicator. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, they're so used to looking at indicated airspeed, but how would they know that they were getting information from ground speed? Like, there's no way for them to know. Exactly. So it's not really that you can't really contribute it to that anyways. I mean, it would never be a thing. They were unknowing and they got hit. And that was pretty much the end of it. It happened so fast, too. I mean, they had just taken off. They didn't know what hit them. Literally, that was it. Recommendations. There are eight of these. They recommend that military forces should, initially, through their appropriate state authorities, liaise with states and ATS units in the area concerned. So, make sure that everybody in the area knows what is happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They recommend that military forces should be fully informed on the extent of all promulgated routes, types of airspace, and relevant regulations and restrictions. Just be aware of what's flying over, especially in terms of civil aviation. They recommend that advanced information on scheduled civil flights should be made available to military units, including the allocated SSR mode A codes when available. Give them what you're going to squawk these airplanes ahead of time. That way they know. So that's one of those things that I feel like would have been really useful here if they had some kind of data for what airplanes would be flying overhead, what their squad yeah. codes actually were, and they could go, no, that's a scheduled airplane. Yeah, we have it on here as a scheduled. Right. They recommend direct communications between military units and the appropriate ATS units, not using regular ATC or the emergency frequencies, should be established for the exchange of real-time flight progress information, delays, and information on non-scheduled flights. These days, you can get a lot of this stuff just digitally. Yep. Flight radar. Phenomenal. Legit flight radar is just like... <laughs> Literally. Flight radar could have saved the day. Yes. <laughs> Which is just kind of crazy to think, but it's true. Mm-hmm. So, but that said, too, I mean, it it really would have behooved them to maybe be in contact with ATC locally there. They weren't that far away. I'm sure had they had a radio that was equipped for commercial aviation frequencies, which they did not, 
on the ship. They could have talked to ATC, and they did not, because they couldn't. So I feel like that would have been a really useful thing. They recommend that military units should be equipped to monitor appropriate ATC frequencies to enable them to identify radar contacts without communication. There you go. Talk to ATC. They recommend that if challenges by military units on the emergency frequency 121.5 become inevitable, these should follow an agreed message format with content operationally meaningful to civil pilots. What that really means is you need to have a set structure that that message needs to be read out to an aircraft that is potentially in danger of being shot down. Yeah. So that it includes the squat code, so that it includes whatever. And these days, of course, something like this exists, and of course there's much more information available to them. So they recommend that in in areas where such military activities occur, information necessary for the safety, regularity, and efficiency of air navigation should be promulgated in a suitable form. The information should contain the type of challenges that might be transmitted and should include instructions to pilots of civil aircraft to monitor the emergency frequency 121.5. Just make sure, on the flip side of things, commercially, they're paying attention, basically. There are safety things in place to help them. And finally, they recommend to assist identification by electronic emissions. Pilots of civil aircraft should ensure continuous operation of airborne weather radars and radio altimeters. Okay. This really doesn't... No, because it was clear weather anyway. ...matter anyways. But that's the whole thing. So it was a whole series of things that I felt really just shouldn't have happened. Nope. And a lot of the world feels the same way, but we could go into how this could make you really mad because all of the people in that unit on that ship were awarded for this, for how they reacted. Yes. For shooting down a civilian aircraft. You should feel so proud of that. They were awarded for their quick actions and self-defense. Against a civilian aircraft. Mm -hmm. That was definitely not going to do anything to them. Correct. The whole crew was awarded combat action ribbons for completion of the tours in a combat zone. The air warfare coordinator on duty received the Navy Commendation Medal. This was reported that these awards for his entire tour from 1984 to 1988 and for his actions relating to surface engagement with Iranian gunboats. You could understand that more than I could understand directly for this. Mm -hmm. In 1990, Captain Rogers was awarded the Legion of Merit for exceptionally meritorious conduct in the performance of outstanding service as commanding officer from April 1987 to May 1989. The award was given for his service as the commanding officer of the Vincennes. During that time, the citation made no mention of the downing of Flight 655. So he was awarded for everything else except for the downing of a commercial airplane with 290 people. Now, were these awards, were they handed out after the fact that everyone knew that it was a commercial flight. Yes. Yes. These were awarded after they returned to the U.S. to port and... A year later. We're done with their tour of duty. So I have some stuff about the aftermath. Christy wanted me to read. You uh-huh. could actually read the first paragraph if you really wanted. This is all from Wikipedia. Okay. So. All right. The event sparked an intense international controversy. Yeah, I could see why. Uh-huh. I personally would have been... Pissed? Really pissed off. But- and the families to this day still are. With Iran condemning the attack, in mid-July 1988, Iranian Foreign Minister Ali Akbar Vilayati Vilayati? asked the United Nations Security Council to condemn the United States for saying the attack could not have been a mistake and was a quote-unquote criminal act, a massacre, and an atrocity. Which, by the way, I would agree. Yes. Yes. Like, civilian people died because of your actions. Most of the world feels the same. George H.W. Bush, then Vice President of the United States in the Reagan administration, defended his country at the U.N. by arguing that the U.S. attack had been 
a wartime incident and the crew of the Vincennes had acted appropriately to the situation. The Soviet Union asked the U.S. to withdraw from the area and supported efforts by the Security Council to end the Iran-Iraq war. Most of the remainder of the 13 delegates who spoke supported the U.S. position, saying one of the problems was that a 1987 resolution to end the Iran-Iraq war had been ignored. Following the debates, Security Council Resolution 616 was passed expressing deep distress over the U.S. attack and profound regret for the loss of human lives and stressing the need to end the Iraq-Iran war as resolved in 1987. Inside Iran, the shootdown was perceived as a purposeful attack by the United States, signaling that the U.S. was about to enter into direct war against Iran on the side of Iraq. In February of 1996, the U.S. agreed to pay Iran $131.8 million U.S. million in settlement to discontinue a case brought by Iran in 1989 against the U.S. in the International Court of Justice relating to this incident. Together with the other earlier claims before the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal, $61.8 million U.S. million of the claim was in compensation for the 248 Iranians killed in the shootdown, $300,000 per wage-earning victim, and $150,000 per non-wage earner. The U.S. government issued notes of regret for the loss of human lives, but never formally apologized or acknowledged wrongdoing. On July 5, 1988, President Ronald Reagan expressed regret when directly asked if he considered the statement an apology. Reagan replied, yes. yes. George H.W. Bush, the vice president of the United States at the time, commented on a separate occasion speaking to a group of Republican ethnic leaders, and this was in August of 1988. Mm -hmm. I will never apologize for the United States. I don't care what the facts are. I'm not an apologize for America kind of guy, end quote. The quote, although unrelated to the downing of the Iranian airliner and not in any official capacity, has been mistakenly attributed as such. Bush used the phrase frequently during the 1988 campaign and promised to never apologize for the United States months prior to the July 1988 shootdown and as early as January 1988. The incident overshadowed Iran-United States relations for many years. The former CIA analyst Kenneth M. Pollock wrote, The shootdown of Iran Air Flight 655 was an accident, but that is not how it was seen in Tehran. Following the explosion of Pan Am Flight 103, five months later, the United States government initially blamed the PLFPGC, a Palestinian militant group backed by Syria with assumptions of assistance from the Iran in retaliation for Flight 655. The distrust generated between the U.S. and Iran was a result of downing of Iran Air Flight 655 as a challenge in the development of the Joint Comprehensive Plan Action, also known as the Iran Nuclear Deal, which was agreed to on the 14th of July, 2015. So it still is having consequences today. And this was, of course, the deadliest shootdown of any aircraft in history. Until? Until Malaysia Flight 17 in the Ukraine. Which we will cover unless we... We've already covered, right? No. No. We will it's, cover. Okay, listen. It was on the schedule and then we moved it. Due because to we were issues. We were supposed to cover it in February of this year and we thought that was a bad idea. So we moved it to February of next year, which still may be a bad idea. Who knows? So, so. that's a whole thing. And it's actually horrifying to think that this was outdone because 290 people is still 
an insane amount of people. That's a very full airplane. How many were on MH17? 300 and something. 283 passengers and 15 crew for a total of 298. Just under 300. Just under 300. Eight more people. Two more people. Than this. Eight more people. It's like two more people and then it would be 300. Eight more people than this. (laughs) So, yeah. that I mean, it's just severely disappointing for the United States to... We made a mistake. And we should apologize. Which, we made the mistake. It was our mistake. Once you get into... War, the unfortunate thing is, it goes back and forth. I don't care if you were justified. You inadvertently killed civilians. Yes. You should apologize. Right. Because we would want, if everything was switched, we would want an apology, right? Like, you always have to put it from the other perspective. If this happened and it was a mistake that they killed almost 300 Americans, Mm -hmm. right? We would want an apology because it was their fault. So you can't just be like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. You can't reason your way out of it. This you, is, you need to like buck up and say, we right. made a mistake and we're sorry and we are going to make steps so that it doesn't happen again. This is unfortunately all too common with shoot downs, though. MH17 was never apologized for. Well, that Korean I, Air I'm, 007 was never apologized for. This is unfortunately just very common with shoot downs. Nobody ever issues an apology. Sure, it's terrible. Usually there's some compensation involved, but an apology was never actually given. That is just unfortunately all too real and common. All right. Well, that was Iranian Air Flight 655. Correct. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being here. I know you didn't say very much, but. <laughs> but thanks for being here thanks anyway. Thanks for being here anyway. No problem. His mellow and quiet balances out your loud and distinctly not mellow. Yes. <laughs> it's always my favorite thing at the end of every episode to say, please check out the Patreon and support us, please. Check out the merch. Check Sign out the merch stuff. Sign up for the newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> Although I have to say a lot of people gave me a lot of feedback after I said that I was like, I don't know if I want to do it anymore. They're like, please, please keep, please doing, keep it. doing it. I'll keep doing it. So many messages and emails all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening again. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, keep your speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.